Welcome to the Politics Guides, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Hey, Mike. Hey, Jay. So, you know, I thought today we would start off just by jumping right into some listener comments, questions, critiques, gripes, whatever you want to call them. That we Super. Can... Okay, so uh, let's start. With Stuart from London, uh, that's London in the actual wow. UK. There are some Londons in the United States, um, and one in Canada, I think. One is London, know? Ohio. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So, as, this is the not as nice. This is the real London, certainly. Uh, as I'll call it that. I don't know the, the first one, maybe. Anyway, Stuart writes: Is the way the U.S. government set up with various powers allocated to the branches more complex than, say, the UK set up, or does it just seem that way? Because it's a non-U.S. citizen, I haven't grown up with it. Um, I don't know. Uh, I I think I think maybe maybe it it uh, it it is. I you know again, I, and I'll say my you know my <clears throat> understanding of the you know English form of government uh, is is based on you know some college classes I took twenty years ago. Um, I can't swear to have any sort of uh, real expertise on um, on uh, how the, the UK government works, but I'll tell you that sure, sure sounds complicated to me. Where you've got a uh, you know a parliament and you elect people uh, by by party, and then the the you know the the speaker is is sort of the the prime minister who's sort of like the president, and then you got a queen, and uh, you know uh, then there's the EU, and it's it's a whole big thing. So I, I think part of it it might just be um, what you grow up with. Um, uh, the other, the other piece, I guess, is that, you know, that, that the British have an, an unwritten constitution, um, uh, as opposed to the U S which has a written one, uh, which to me, the written one seems kind of easier to go with cause you can just look stuff up. Um, but again, that, that may just be the, uh, what I'm used to, uh, talking. So. Yeah. And I think that's partly it. I, I would agree with you, but I guess I would be a little more comfortable saying that uh, I think, a par- generally speaking, parliamentary systems are uh, uh, a little less complex, actually, a little more streamlined in certain ways. And and I think, to my mind, a little more, uh, I would say, sensible, almost. And so I think that I understand, at least I think I understand, some of the reasons why we chose not to go with a parliamentary system in the United States. But I think that was a mistake on the part of the framers. And, and I think we would have been better served with the system like that though, you know, who the heck knows, but that's kind of my take on that. So. Yeah. And well, something that's important to remember so much of a, a parliamentary system is based on parties and, and coalitions and factions and so forth. And the American founders uh, didn't expect or didn't think, or just hoped uh, that we wouldn't have that sort of party or factionalism. There's, there's, you know, no mention in the U S constitution of, of parties or, or anything like that. Um, and the, the idea was that, uh, you know, your representatives would just represent you and the representatives of the States would represent the States. Um, and, and I guess it was, it was naive um, yeah. on the part of, of, of the founders to, to think that that you wouldn't have a partisan system evolve, and and again, a partisan system evolved pretty, pretty much pretty quickly. Like within the first, you know, eight years, <laughs> we we had a, uh, a, you know, a partisanship. So I think that that is maybe a difference of you know why we didn't go with a, a parliamentary system. Um, although you know, thinking back, it's sort of 
in some ways, you know, there was there was deference to the state legislatures to set themselves up however they liked. Um, but uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I guess I, that's just kind of my my historical note as to, sure. to why we don't have a parliamentary system. Yeah. Um, yep. Big mistake. Say too bad, but it's not like we're going to change anytime soon. Um, anyway, uh, so Stuart's second question writes. Uh, Mike's comments on the various attempts by states to make it harder to make boundary changes is a good thing, struck me as strange. How, given all the gerrymandering that has come before, would this be anything but settling in ad- or setting in advance for one party or the other in stone without attempting to redraw boundaries in a more logical manner first? And so I think you know what Stuart's talking about here is, yeah. is gerrymandering. And so, I, I mean, to me, the issue here, and we've seen a number of states move toward this, is toward some sort of a um, bipartisan or at least less partisan uh, commission. Uh, yeah, and, yes. and I should say, I could see where you'd say, well, if this is being done by the powers that be, if I understand the question correctly, and Stuart, if I'm misunderstanding your question, just write in and let me know, but that uh, that essentially, if these folks are doing this, wouldn't this basically just be cementing in an advantage for them. And I would say, well, yeah, if the legislature passed this stuff, but in a lot of cases, what we're seeing is that these things are happening through ballot initiatives and legislatures are actually resisting these things because the reason they're happening through ballot initiatives is because the people are feeling like the legislature are, you know, are being partisan and trying to set uh, advantages in stone. And that to me is one of the, the positives of this is that one of the sort of catch-22s of institutional reform is that oftentimes, almost all the time, you're asking the people in power to change institutional arrangements that benefit them because it's what got them and keeps them in power. And that, I think, it can be the advantage of ballot initiatives and direct democracy. Now, there's certainly a downside. All kinds of crazy stuff can get passed, potentially. We've talked about that in the past. But I think a lot of times if it's done in this manner, it actually can work. That's not to say it always does. There are issues with ballot initiatives, certainly, but uh, that's kind of my take on this. Jay, um, you know, I, I think Stuart kind of hits it hits it on the head a little bit in that. Look, redistricting, uh, no matter what, is an inherently political decision, um, and the, the U.S. Constitution recognized that. Uh, and I think the the response is, and and so necessarily, it's it's the people who are in power who are going to be drawing those districts, um, just because who else is going to do it? I mean, that's you're exactly right. It's it's a catch twenty two. Um, but the other piece of this is that you know we have uh, uh, the dis- redistricts are drawn every ten years, um, and that's for a lot of good reasons. Like there's shifts in population, uh, there are changes in attitudes, there are. Uh, uh, you know, just changes in um, where, well, I guess I suppose I already said that population, but uh, it's also a good thing because the constitution says that's what you have to do. Um, uh, so I, I think there's, there's always this, this opportunity to, to continue to, to redraw. And if there are, um, you want to say one party overreaches, uh, then uh, the next party can, can sort of try to even it out next time around. Um the other part of this that I think is so often overlooked is um, it's it's sort of a game that that a lot of times there's some a lot of bipartisan cooperation uh, in drawing these districts and it's you know maybe doesn't play out that way 
But there are plenty of, uh, say you are a, and I'm going to use my state of Ohio as an example, which is tends to be a, a uh, Republican state, uh, Republican-leaning, um, but we have strong de- Democratic uh, contingencies in the, the big cities and, uh, and, and certainly north, northern Ohio as opposed to southern Ohio is more Republican. Um, but uh, so there are a lot of these representatives who are perfectly happy to draw a district that will uh, they'll be a Democrat and they'll, they'll be happy to protect their own seat, uh, even if that means giving up another seat uh, to to Republican. There are there are deals that are struck. Uh, for example, the district I live in is is uh, absolutely crazy shaped. It's, it's called uh, referred to as the snake on the lake uh, because it runs sort of across across the uh, Lake Erie shore. Um, all the way from Cleveland to Toledo, the west side of Cleveland to to Toledo. So I, my my congressperson is from Toledo, which is about two hours away, and really a different city, a different place uh, altogether than where I'm from. Um, but part of that <laughs> district was drawn because, well, they're going to lose a seat, uh, and the Democrats decided they wanted to draw out um, uh, Representative Dennis Kucinich um, for a number of reasons, one of which he's nuts. Uh, but uh, he was sort of a thorn in the, the Democrat party, Party's side. Uh, so they said, look, if we're going to lose a seat, let's go ahead and, and make this deal. Have this weird-shaped district that's still going to be a Democrat district, but um, uh, you know he won't be in it. Um, so uh, you know that stuff happens, uh, and it doesn't affect the bigger picture um, uh, of, of uh, uh, you know how, how seats get drawn and how many you know whatever left-leaning, right-leaning. Um, and, and I would say almost it, it's there's sort of a, a idea that that parties like to draw seats that are easily winnable, um, either either side, because again, it, it's that predictability, right? Um, so that any given election um, in the state, for example, state legislature can come down to sort of like you know a handful, 10, 10 15 races out of ninety nine uh, in Ohio. Uh, so I, I think that's. I think there's there's a lot there are there are wheels within wheels within wheels in this in this stuff, but it is is inherently a political decision. Uh, there are always deals that are made. Uh, that's just kind of the way it is. and the the saving grace is uh, that that it is sort of constantly being changed and reformed um, and reexamined. yeah you know, so some people so, so what I'm saying is I don't think there's a lot that that is is cast in stone. It may be cast in stone for like the next two years or next four years, but uh, certainly not the next 10 years. Well, maybe, maybe not. I think what some people object to uh, about this, they say it's a, a difference of a difference of, of kind, uh, sort of a qualitative difference, is that uh, if you're allowed to lock in your own electorate, then you can actually, this can kind of build on itself in a way where where subsequent, you know, if you overreach, the next legislature can redress that, not necessarily the case because of the nature of what we're talking about here. Um, the other thing I would add to this is, you know, some, some have said, well, there's a simple way around all this, and it doesn't have to do with bipartisan commissions or anything like that. It has to do with eliminating single-member member districts, meaning that, for instance, Ohio has 16 uh, members of uh, the House of Representatives, and that's, of course, based on population, and right. that it would just basically be you, you'd elect 16 people to run at large. And so it'd be sort of like a parliamentary system. Exactly. Which you you like going back to that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, there's something to be said for that. Now, I'm not saying that we should just, you know, go ahead and try that, but there's nothing that would constitutionally prohibit a state from doing that. Are there any states that do that now? 
Uh, not that I'm aware of. No. I thought there was maybe somebody like a some goofy New England state that had like, considering something like that. Not, not that I'm aware of. No, but I mean, it would be an interesting yeah. experiment. Certainly, we we've seen it. I mean, certain governments do it. We see it a lot with city governments and that sort of yeah. thing with at large. Uh, at large seats, and then there are there are pros and cons, certainly. And uh, the 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 Birkin in me would say I'm not necessarily crazy about just you know would be crazy about just switching to the system and let's see what happens. Right. But well, and uh, you would say, look, the interest of of a place where I live, um, uh, northeastern Ohio, is is in the issues involved. In northeastern Ohio are different than a lot of the issues yeah. where you live, southwestern Ohio. Yeah. And, right? and, and I mean, this, it's and different this, constituencies, it's different people, it's different industries, it's it's all that. And I think there's a good argument that that uh, you know you would have a different representative from that area. Yeah, yeah, and that, I mean, and that is, and so it's not. I'm not saying, well, well, this is clearly a superior thing. There are certain advantages and disadvantages and that sort of thing. So, so yeah. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, Johnny writes in high school. I read a book called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, and recently, in my U.S. presidency course. We read a piece about the psychological underpinnings of personal party alignment. The idea is basically this. People have, whether born with or socialized, a few basic morals. Democrats and Republicans attract people based on certain fundamental morals that the parties emphasize. The Democrats are essentially mobilized through notions of equality, regardless of nationality or class. Republicans focus more on a sense of loyalty to group, whether that's family or country or both, and respect for authority. I always think about this when discussions about political disagreements occur, occur, and it almost always applies, in my opinion. Do you think this is true? Jay? Um, I, I'd say no. Um, again, I, look, I haven't read either of, either of those books, so it's, it's probably you know, not fair of me just kind of jumping in, uh, because the, the arguments may be you know, really well laid out, and if I read them, I might think differently. But... Um, you know, my my sense is that uh, uh, there we are sort of socialized in, into into our parties, but it's it's even less a I don't know that's even a thing of we identify with particular values. In some ways, I think we identify with the same values. But we just call them different things. Um, uh, I, I I I would disagree, sort of pretty vehemently, that the Republicans. Uh, believe in sort of a group identity. Uh, uh, I guess that's, and I'm not sure. Well, again, again, I guess I'm not well, sure. Let, what let exactly me explain that, that. Yeah, I, I can I can speak to that because I've actually I've read the book. I'm a big fan of it. I've actually used parts of it in my classes. And so, essentially, what moral foundations theory, and this is what this is what Johnny's talking about, is it, I think it's really fascinating, and it's based on this sort of cross cultural massive series of surveys that Jonathan Haidt and other research groups have done. And what they found is that, that their argument is that based on this research, there are essentially five foundations of morality, if you will. And the five foundations are the first one is care. That's kind of protecting other folks. The second is fairness or proportionality, kind of the justice thing. The mm -hmm. third is loyalty to group. The fourth is authority or respect. And the fifth is sanctity or purity. It's kind of like, you know, things, certain things are disgusting or wrong right, or that kind of right. thing. And what they found is that uh, people who identify as conservatives pretty much adhere to these things or believe in the importance of these things more or less equally. But people who see themselves as liberals put a lot more emphasis on those first two things, the care okay. and the equality thing. 
And uh, that's my understanding of it. And I think actually I've looked at the data behind this and, and you know, and considered the arguments. And I really think there, there is something to be said for that. And there's a couple of ways to spin this. If you're on the right, you could say, well, see, conservatives are much more balanced than liberals are. Now, if you're on the, on the left end of these things, as I am, you could say, well, no, that there's nothing to say that these five values are all equal in importance and that, in fact, care and fairness are more important, which is why that we see these things as more important than, say, loyalty or authority, which are kind of vestiges of our tribal past, and we should try to jettison these to a certain extent. Mm. And that's kind of, I, I think there's maybe something to be said for that. So I think it's, I, I would I would definitely recommend that anyone who hasn't picked up The Righteous Mind, and that's the book where, where Haidt lays out this theory. It's a great book, well worth reading. It definitely changed a lot in the way that I look at politics. And so I give it a, I give it a huge thumbs up and a big recommendation. Okay. Well, I, I will check it out. I would, I would add one, one other piece uh, to that though is, and again, maybe it's, maybe it's sort of a different expectation of, um, you know, where we align ourselves morally, but a lot of what I expect out of my government has nothing to do with, with, um, uh, morality uh, with things like uh, just getting getting the job done, uh, for example, keeping the country safe, uh, uh, paving the roads, filling the potholes, uh, you know, preserving a strong economy. Um, those aren't necessarily moral values, right? It, it's, uh, you know, that it's just we you're looking at this as here are the the deliverables I want uh, from from my government. Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe that just doesn't figure into to Heights analysis, but I will check out the book. All right. Uh, let's see. Our next question here is uh, from Eric, who wrote in on our website, politicsguys.com. You can do that in the comments. And sometimes we have all sorts of interesting things going on in the comments section. Uh, he wrote in with a link as well as a question for you, Jay. Oh, boy. Um, OK. <laughs> all right. Eric writes after the link. In this November 10th Miami Herald article, the one Jay continues to cite as his source and justification for stating repeatedly and erroneously that ballots were found in an airport rental car. Uh, be careful, Jay may be slandering the author if he continues to purposefully mischaracterize his work. You will note the article is titled, No, These Ballot Boxes Found in Broward Don't Contain Votes, Officials Say, and was published a full seven days before Jay went on to cite it or another article to push his right-wing agenda. Please issue a retraction or cite the mysterious article published right before you went to air from the same newspaper that apparently said the complete opposite. Like I said, Jay is right-wing, disingenuous, or both. I'm sure he's a great guy to grab a beer with, but it is a full-time job keeping up with his, his squirrely relationship with the facts and refusal, refusal to Google his own punditry. Otherwise, I love the show. Warmest <laughs> regards, Eric. Well, I'd have to take a look at the the I, I dot look at the link that uh, Eric sent. Um, but uh, I I will do that. Uh, if I am wrong, I will issue a a correction. Um, uh, but uh, I, I think there was there is still some some concern as to uh, ballots being found in uh, rental cars at uh, at the airport. Um, uh, and I, we've, we've yet to hear an explanation as to how that happened or how that's a normal thing to have happened. Uh, uh, and I, I think the, the rest of the history of the, the, uh, the Snipes administration there in Broward County, 
uh, speaks volumes as to how um, uh, the elections have been conducted there. And and I guess it it, it strikes me as uh, as odd. The the initial response is always like, uh, "No, you're lying." Is this conservative spin? Um, uh, you know, again, there are there are court uh, documents about her improperly destroying ballots, uh, improperly releasing results. Um, this is this is not uh, new. This has been determined by the the uh, appropriate legal system. Um, uh, so I, I will I will take a look. But uh, um, uh, my if, if a if a cor- correction is is due, I will make it. Okay, so and so I think there are two issues here. There's first the 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 simple factual. Well, I don't know how simple the factual issue is, but whether or not this in fact was a was an incorrect story that you you might have seen, and that's one issue. Uh, the bigger issue, I think, to my sense, from what I'm hearing, is your argument that there's just some generally speaking, even if regardless of what this story is, uh, there are. More, there are broader problems with the administration of the election system under under Snipes, and that wouldn't necessarily be affected one way or the other uh, to a significant degree by whatever this specific incident. Right, is. Is right, that... right. I mean, that's yeah. Okay. I mean, the, the, for the, for example, the question: Why weren't? Why wasn't there the real time reporting that you got from every other uh, 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 you know county in Florida and in, in the nation? Right. I mean. Um, how is it that that everyone else can do this, uh, but Broward County can't? And then you can say, well, it's resources. Uh, but again, I, I think it's sort of hard to believe that um, this lack of re- resources uh, falls so particularly on uh, Broward County um, as opposed to the rest of the nation. Um, so, yeah, and I think actually that this is maybe a little more widespread. Jay, I'll be a little more negative here, but that we tend to see a lot more in, in, in close races because it's the spotlight is put on that sort of thing. And, and, and I feel like lack of resources, I've mentioned this before, is a big thing. And I was, this is actually, uh, I taught a class this semester on public policy. And one of the things that we wrapped up the semester with was a discussion of uh, vote fraud, voting security policy, that sort of thing, elections policy. And I did some kind of back of the envelope type calculations. And for the low, low cost of, oh, a couple billion dollars, which, you know, in federal budget terms is almost nothing, we could sure. do an awful lot to bring resources up to a level which would make a lot of these problems, I would think, not entirely go away, but be a lot less uh, to, to minimize these things. And it would be a pretty simple thing. You know, the federal government does this all the time by saying, offering grants to states and county governments and basically saying, here's this pot of money. And as long as you adopt these sort of best practices, then you have access to this. And I think that would be that would be something I would like to see if Congress is really serious about election security and the integrity of our elections. Then they should put their money where their mouth is, because in the larger scheme of things, it's just not that much money. And it's for something that's so hugely important that I think we really need to focus much more on. Yeah. Given, given people money always improves accountability. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'll take a look at the links and, uh, I will respond accordingly. All right. Okay. Next, uh, Anna message messaged us on our Facebook page with this comment. Uh, this is about, I, I said something about mandatory voting. We were talking about that. I think it was last week. And she yeah, said, I wasn't on that show, but that sounds like a terrible idea. <laughs> well, I think, I, well, it's just what Anna has to say. If people know they should do it, 
They'll educate themselves and do it. It would increase engagement. She says, I don't read about car performance research until I'm about to buy a car. Saying that forcing people to vote is a checkbox thing is nonsense. Voting with an empty choice is already communicating. So essentially, the argument uh, Anna has here is that if you tell people they have to do it, they will become more engaged, at least some of them will. And that will be a positive thing for democracy. And Jay, I think your your stance on this, you've already kind of telegraphed that. Well, there, I, I think there, there are all kinds of um, uh, dictators throughout history who, who made that exact same argument that, look, if we tell people uh, to do it, uh, they will be much more responsive um, uh, if we mandate it. Uh, my my issue is it's really kind of antithetical to, to freedom. Um, uh, and my my concern would be, look, the places where you've seen mandatory voting historically have been uh, despotic uh, uh, places, right? Like um, Australia. Well, Australia exactly, has yeah. mandatory voting. I mean, there are there are a number of countries who have it. And I think there's a difference here is that in these cases, in these in these countries that have it, uh, it's not like if you don't go vote, you go to jail. It's like the equivalent of some totally minor thing. And it's 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 essentially done just basically to emphasize that participating in democracy is not just this thing you can do if you feel like it, but it is an obligation that's expected of all citizens. And I, I think there's something to be said for that. Yeah. To, to me, that sort of is, is at odds with the very idea of, of democracy. Well, I think you maybe right? say it's, it's at the odds of your, 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 uh, uh, we go going to moral foundations again, you know, you, you tend to think that, uh, well, we didn't talk about this as part of moral foundations, but one of the things I should mention that, that Hyde and his researchers said is, well, we think there might be this sixth dimension, this kind of liberty dimension that so many people go. on the right are so incredibly hung up on that that's, that's the be all and end yeah. all. Yeah. And I would say, yeah, liberty is important, but, you know, there are a lot of things that are also important. And I think where the right airs so often is by making liberty the be all and the end all. And I disagree yeah. with that. Yeah. James Madison was hung up on Liberty. Um, well, again, it's not a matter of not saying our, it's yeah. important, but it's a matter of saying that doesn't matter then more than all these other things. And I think too many people on the right seem to think that Liberty is all that matters and everything else is just kind of like, well, whatever. All right. Well, let me, let me put it to you this way. Let's, let's say we have mandatory voting and, and you say, okay, well, the the penalty for not mandatorily voting uh, is is minimal. Um, well, why why is that? If if it's important, shouldn't the penalty be be uh, greater? Well, no, not at all. I think that the point of it is not so much to try to uh, criminalize non-voting. The point of it is to enshrine in law this sort of obligation that all citizens should understand that they have. Okay. So and again, well, but, there, there again, are, again, but 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 what it's actually doing is criminalizing non-voting. But it's not really because it's not it's not enforced in the same way that say laws against uh, uh, you know whatever like criminal acts, felonies, other things like that, that sort of thing. So so yeah, I, I think perhaps not perhaps not immediately. Well, no, not. I mean, you know, there have been like I said, there are a number of countries that actually have used this for a while, and it's not like there's been this slippery slope where, oh my God, Australia is just going down the tubes because they're throwing people in jail for not voting, you know, and that kind of thing. So, so no, I I disagree. I think that might actually be a a good thing, and I think Anna makes some good points. All right, all right. Um, let's move on. Talk a little bit about what if you just forget to vote? I think that again, if it's not really 
criminalized or it's gone a, after. That's not so much of an issue. So it's not. There's not. There's what's the mens rea? I guess is it a strict liability or is it a uh, I meant to but I couldn't? Yeah, and I think that's pretty much where it's sort of like, well, okay, basically, you know. There's not, it's not like freedom is being you know, flushed down the toilet in Australia because of, uh, because of mandatory voting, that sort of thing. All right. All right. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about what we're reading, uh, listening to, what have you, that sort of thing. Um, I don't know, Jay, do you want, uh, you want me to start off or do you want to start yeah, off? Yeah, you can start off. Okay, well, Jay, I don't know if you know this, but uh, this year, I might have mentioned this before, is the 200th anniversary of Karl Marx's birth. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Well, you know, I knew you'd say that, but yeah. I've been thinking a lot about Marx lately and about capitalism lately. And, you know, I'm kind of one of these sort of like one and a half cheers for capitalism sort of people. I've got a big problem with capitalism in the market, uh, and I have for, for a long period of time. And but the weird thing is, is that doesn't put me entirely in the liberal camp because I also have some pretty big problems with the state. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, overall, though, I have more problems with the market and capitalism than I do with the state for a lot of reasons. Um, and uh, so I've been reading a little bit about Marx. And there's one great article uh, that I read recently this week called The Inexhaustible Desire to Keep Talking About Marx. Um and it talks about a number of books that have recently come up. Yeah, I thought you'd like that title. Um, and, and one of the quotes, maybe, maybe it's only inexhaustible in certain segments. But, that's true. Yeah. That's true. You don't talk about Marx. I can, I can, I can quickly become exhausted. And but. I would say much to your detriment. Now, there's one line I really love from this article saying, uh, capitalism's tragic fate is that it cannot cope with the growth it is stimulated and will be riven by crisis after crisis until eventually it collapses. Um, I really like that line. Um, was that was that from Marx or one of these biographers? That or? is from the article that talks about a lot of yeah. these books about Marxism. In fact, there's one of these books about Marxism that sounded just fascinating to me. Uh, it's a book that uh, just came out in 2018 called Marx and Marxism. It is now on my Amazon wish list. Uh, part one is a look at Marx, the person, kind of putting him in context of his time. And the second part looks not just at Marxism as a, as a philosophy, but kind of as it's actually played out from the 19th century to the present. And best of all, there are a lot of these books on Marxism I picked up that are just sort of daunting and impenetrable and incredibly long. This is much clearer, more straightforward, and best of all, it covers a lot of ground, but in only 305 pages. It's not counting you know, the end notes and all that sort of thing. So even if it's not something I get as a Christmas present, it's definitely something I'm probably going to end up getting myself, and I'm really looking forward to reading it. Wow. So I, I will just, I, I guess I'd begin by noting the, the irony that there seems to be a market for Marxist books. Um, uh, but, uh, and, and how would Marx have felt about that? Uh, yeah, well, you know, and I think it, you know, and again, it's, you can certainly, uh, you can certainly credit, do it, use a, a straw man critique of Marx and Marxism, which a lot of people on the right love doing. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that, you know, you should just say, oh, Karl Marx, ha ha ha, you know, Soviet Union, and just say, well, obviously this man had nothing useful to say. I, certainly, I'm not advocating yeah, well, Marxism. I've said a lot of times, I've, I've said in, in a lot of ways, Marx diagnosed the problem correctly, but but give the wrong uh, prescription. Okay, yeah. And I think you and I probably would have certain grounds of uh, agreement uh, about that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. 
but but again, that that, that prescription, when put in place, had led to the the death, torture, incarceration of of millions and millions of people. I mean, again, let's let's talk, I mean talk the numbers. I mean, probably uh, thirty million under Stalin, probably close to fifty million under Mao. Uh, probably uh, uh, two to three million under under Pol Pot in Cambodia. Um, but but to be fair, to be fair, those are exactly the kind of uh, uh, societies or governments, uh, uh, countries in which Mark was saying that actually no, they wouldn't be ready for that sort of. Thing. I mean, those those were pretty. That was the philosophy that was you know the, grafted on to places that, according to what I understand to be Marx's own interpretation it could not be correctly interpreted. So, you know, if you take something and you use it incorrectly, it's like say, oh, there's this, there's this chainsaw, which is really useful for cutting down trees. And, oh, I cut off my arm with it. And it's really, chainsaws are bad. Well, if they're used incorrectly, yeah, absolutely they are. So I think that's more blaming, blaming, you know, Lenin maybe, or blaming Paul Pot, but uh, blaming the, blaming the theory for the people who incorrectly use it to me is, uh, is uh, wrongheaded. All right, fair, fair, fair enough. Um, uh, I would. I am going to take sort of the the farthest turn away from from uh, Marx that I can. Okay. Um, and and again, this is uh, this. I know this is going to air on Wednesday, but it's it's still Sunday when we're recording it. Um, I I would just note the um, the eulogies to President. Uh, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, from the funeral. If you didn't have the opportunity to see them or hear them, uh, it it's really impressive and I think speaks to what is best about uh, our country, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Um, uh, I, I I was, you know, you, you say I am very much the cynic all the time while well, you're the idealist and, and you may be correct, but um, uh Really, uh, some some fantastic speakers, uh, particularly uh, 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 George W. Bush. Um, uh, but uh, I mean, it's it was uh, sort of sort of uh, for me again, kind of kind of riveting TV, and and I think it uh, it made some important statements uh, about our country and how it was and how it is now and, uh, how it might be in the future. So that's, that's sort of my, what I'm reading, what I'm listening to. So, all right. Yeah. And it'll be a good, a good, uh, a good antidote, uh, after you've, you read all this Marx stuff. <laughs> and that, and remember folks that that comes from Jay, our resident, uh, cynic. Uh, so it's not a little dose of idealism for Jay. I think that's a, that's yeah. a great note to close on. So, uh, uh, thanks everyone for listening. We really do appreciate it. And let us know what you thought. Uh, if, if maybe I need to, if I got my facts wrong, Hey, you know, we're ready to, we're always interested in making sure that we're going by the facts, both Jay and I, right, Jay? That's right. Absolutely. We're fact-based. Uh, and we do appreciate all your comments, questions, concerns, all that kind of stuff. We'd also appreciate it if you haven't already, if you could subscribe to the show, share episodes, that helps us a whole lot. And Hey, if you want to chuck in a few bucks here or there to keep the show going, that would be great too. And you can do that by going to politicsguys.com slash support. If you want to get in touch with us, it's mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page. We have stuff throughout the week, facebook.com slash politics guys. We are also on Twitter at politics guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, Will Miller, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you join us.